This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H-Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pam and John, Brando, The King of Night, and The Catcher in the Rye, Eisenhower, Backseat, England's Got a New Queen, Marciano, Liberace, Santayana, Goodbye. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we start some fires? Oh, why not? I'm feeling a little chilly and I want to get heated up. So today we're doing a topic that I frankly know nothing about. I can't even (laughs) spitball on it. He is a philosopher by the name of George Santayana, Spanish-born, but um, I guess considered part of the American school of philosophy. And number one, I know nothing even about what philosophy is other than it's mansplaining on steroids. Massive mansplaining, often from an ivory tower. Yeah, nice. I mean, do you have any, have you, have you seen an episode of The Simpsons that perhaps touches on Santayana or have you heard it in a, a Wham song? Like those are your two sources of information That's usually. Right. It doesn't seem to pop up anywhere else apart from Billy's song, Katie. Well, this, this is a case where we certainly need to uh, elicit the help of our expert, and our expert today is Dr. Matt Flam. He is the professor of philosophy at Rockford University, Illinois, and he is going to fill in all of those Santayana blanks. Hello, Dr. Matt. Hello, Katie and Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Well, first of all, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Santayana, which, by the way, his name is fun to say, fun to sing, what (laughs) is the goal of philosophy? What's the point? Are, are ph- philosophers always in sort of mortal combat with each other to prove whose view is the correct one? Do you, are you always trying to beat each other into submission with the sheer power of rhetoric? We do like arguments, and uh, I, I really, I really liked your uh, characterization, mansplaining on steroids. That was that was apt, actually. So, yeah, when I got into graduate school, I have to confess that one of the first things I was told is what a male atmosphere you could expect philosophy to be. History and philosophy are very male territory type disciplines. So, but yeah, in addition, philosophy is about argument. You know, the classic definition of philosophy is the love of wisdom. My favorite is. Um, it is thinking where thinking usually stops, something like that, you know, um, th- continuing to think, thinking about thinking. Um, and for, for better or for worse, however those help, those definitions help, you're correct to say it's very much about being uh, critical and trying to identify differences of uh, points of view and uh, make those very clear. Mm. Now, I'm going to be slightly unfair on George here because he did write 28 books over the course of his life. So I hold my hand up, Matt, when I ask you this question, which is, um, what's his central idea? Yeah, materialism is where you start with Santayana in the sense that that's his his conception of reality. It basically means that reality itself is material, that we die when we die, there is no afterlife. Um, but it's more than that. Santayana also has a very robust sense of spirit. He, he, he has um, a sense of the life of spirit. He believes there is spirituality. And so it's this kind of dual aspect of his thought, trying to hold together two elements that 
tend to be kept apart by most other philosophers. They tend to either be materialists and therefore anti anything supernatural and or or the opposite, right? So so I guess that would be a, a sort of concise way uh, that, of stating what's central to his thinking. So Katie, we're living in a material world and he's a material boy. <laughs> you know, I, I think Madonna is one of the foremost philosophers of her generation. I want to run through some of his greatest hits, uh, his bumper sticker sayings. Of course, there is those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But also, here's a catchy one. Only the dead have seen the end of war. That's Ooh, a pretty yeah. good one. And then I, I love his definition of beauty as pleasure objectified. And then this is quite a good one that applies timelessly now and forever. History is a pack of lies about events that never happened, told by people who weren't there. <laughs> right. I mean, you're, you're just laying out the, the greatest hits of what makes Santiana so interesting. And But it's funny because most people, they, I, I see these quotes turn up. If you just do Googles on anything you just quoted, they, they turn up in so many different kinds of places. And Sometimes they have, uh, they credit Santiana, sometimes they don't, right? It's really interesting. Yeah, sometimes they credit, what, Homer Simpson or Wile E. Coyote. <laughs> exactly. So how do you rise at the ranks of philosophers? Like, why are we talking about Santayana and not some of the other philosophers of that time? Because it's not like a, an ordinary job where you can prove yourself. Is it like how good your ideas are or how well you explain them? I think probably both, um, but but uh, even more so the first of what you said, how good your ideas are, how abiding, you know, how lasting. Um, in our case, of course, Santayana's famous quote that everybody seems to know in one way or another, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm pretty convinced that Billy Joel more or less had that uh, full stop in mind when he dropped the Santayana, what do you say, Santayana, goodbye, right? That line. Um, That's it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I, love, I have to mention that because it, the context of this podcast, I just love, I, by the way, I love this podcast. It's fun to uh, uh, contextualize these historical ideas through this pop song that I remember very well. I was in middle school when that was a hit. Um, so that quote is one very, very straightforward answer to why Santayana's name seems to remain. I mean, that quote shows up. You mentioned a Simpsons episode, uh, Katie, and I do believe there is a Simpsons episode where they they paraphrase that quote. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's a there's one certainly where they where they paraphrase those who cannot remember the past, you know, quote. I'm, wo I'm wondering, Matt, if uh, the reason why you were drawn to Santayana was the Billy Joel song, <laughs> We Didn't Start the Fire. Are you kidding? I, did, I didn't even know. I, I didn't even know that was, a, I didn't know until maybe two years ago, I was at a philosophy conference and somebody said, oh yeah, well, Billy Joel. And I was like, what are you talking about, Billy Joel? And then I that song, you know, it kind of goes by really fast in the lyrics. So, you know, but um, no, it wasn't that. Um, it was, I was studying philosophy as, as a second year uh, uh, undergraduate and I encountered Santayana in an American philosophy class. I didn't even know, like most red-blooded Americans, that Santayana existed. It's kind of true that most of them would not know that Santayana even said that quote that they all know. Um, so, but I was immediately just um, bewitched by his thinking. I thought he was a uh, genius from the, from, from the get-go. We read a book called Skepticism and Animal Faith, which is um, probably a good place to start if you're philosophically interested. And what was so dynamic about his approach? Because I assume that when a new thrusting young philosopher comes on the scene and says, hey, guys, 
what about this approach? What about this idea? Like, what was it that he was sort of uh, overcoming or rejecting from the past? It's a great question. He, you know, what made him radical to me uh, was his attempt to surpass the um, categories of modern philosophy, and those go back to Descartes. So, so if you know anything about philosophy, you might know Descartes, right? Because Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, he's the "I think, therefore I am" guy. Another guy who's kind of known for one of his famous sayings in one of his works. Um, but what's significant about modern philosophy is its subjectivism, and this is what's characteristic about modern philosophy, all the way from Descartes through Kant, Immanuel Kant, the other most famous kind of bookending modern philosopher. And what Santayana was trying to do was kind of call the bluff of all of this stuff. He saw philosophers in the modern period as skeptics, as um, trenchant critics, but as really out of touch with reality. So, so I, th I found that radical uh, because being acquainted with philosophy and how much it has um, over the over time since the time of Descartes kind of uh, more or less become the underlying principle of modern the modern outlook right modern the modern outlook is subjective we we think of ourselves to the point now today where we're all in our little bubbles and we're all thinking our reality is just our reality I mean this is exactly what is um, uh, the rem Santiana is exactly the remedy for that for me he he helps sort of break out of that subjectivism. And that, that was what I found radical about him, at least from the very beginning, yeah. It doesn't seem, Matt, that Santayana is the typical egghead philosopher, because when he was at Harvard, he edited the Harvard Lampoon, and uh, he was known for his pithy and stylish writing. He's a best-selling author. Um, and above and beyond philosophy, he covers arts and sciences. He addresses cultural issues, social issues. So it seems like uh, he's not necessarily like just a dry brain on a stick. <laughs> I love that characterization. Yeah. You guys did, did you know something about Santiana? That's a wonderfully said. Um, yes, his, his humor. Uh, he had a wonderful sense of humor and, um, and, as you say, he was associated from the beginning with it. He was also a cartoonist, an aspiring cartoonist at the very early, I wouldn't say serious, but, um, but they're, they're nice little um, examples of Santiana's tendency to engage in uh, joking and, and humor and, and right up to his system of philosophy, the opening words of his skepticism and animal faith where he introduces his system of philosophy, which sounds so grandiose and like he's gonna get all serious and boring like most philosophers, as you were just saying. He ends up saying, um, Here's one more system of philosophy. If the reader is tempted to smile, I can assure him I, I smile with him, right? He says right from the beginning. So he's smiling as he's presenting these serious ideas, meaning he's ironic, you know, and he, 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 he gets the over-seriousness of traditional philosophy, of typical philosophers, especially if you compare him with his con contemporaries. Um, at the time Santiana was writing, so you had, you know, Bertrand Russell um, in England, you had him as the kind of like lodestar of what philosophy was supposed to be at that time, but a great writer, and I love Bertrand Russell, in fact, select essays and works of his I, I teach in my classes, Nevertheless, it's not crackling fireside stuff. It's not stuff that's going to, you know, that you're going to be reading to your, your you know, love interest to try to inspire them about anything, right? So I think that's what you're getting at, yeah. So speaking of love interest, let's talk about uh, 
his relationships in his life or, or lack of lack thereof. Yeah, because I'm wondering, love perhaps was not conducive to his work as a philosopher, or did he uh, deliberately refrain from intimacy with people? What was the score there? Well, intellectually, philosophically, he was an amazing uh, uh, expounder on love, he, much like Plato. His one of his major, in, in, you know, inspirations for his thought. Um, he had a lot to say about love, but as you say, personally, he um, he, he avoided uh, relationships. You might even say intimate relationships. Okay, he he didn't avoid general relationships. He had much um, social engagement. He has a famous quote where he says, "The three traps of philosophy are the church, the marriage bed, uh, and academic life, academic careers." Uh, he he managed to avoid you know two out of the three of those um, altogether, but academics almost trapped him until he left Harvard in 1912. But as far as his you know relationships, yeah, there's there's a, a recent essay that I would recommend if anyone was interested in it is by Robert uh, Davidoff, where he titled "The Genius of the Closet," where he he really lays out in in persuasive terms what we can probably say about his sexuality because Santiana himself only realized late life around 1926 I think it was he said in a passing way um, in comment on poet A.E. Hausman who, who he says was a homosexual he says quote unquote he says in afterthought he says I suppose I was myself that way in my Harvard days as well you know that's as close as he gets to admitting that he was gay um, meantime all of the evidence shows that he was most certainly um, enjoyed the company of young men, young poets, male poets in particular. Um, and then uh, later in life, it, it became quite clear in his letters that he had a very deep, intimate connection with um, Bertrand Russell's older brother, Lord Russell. And it's pretty clear from the letters um, that he, he, he had some intimate connection with him that went beyond um, platonic to some degree. So that's all we know. Um, so we end up speculating, but it's pretty clear he avoided um, deeper intimate relationships for the most part throughout his life. His relationship with Lord Russell, was it a happy one? I've heard some suggestions that Lord Russell treated him rather badly, that he was something of a cad. Absolutely, yeah. It's fascinating. The way Santiana describes it in a key letter is that it comes off to me like, uh, if you've ever known um, people who've had relationships where it's almost based on the abuse one of them gets from the other, either emotional or physical, and um, in the case of Santiana, it looks like emotional, perhaps abuse from Lord Russell that he, as he says in the letter, was willing to endure, uh, he knows not why himself, in a way that he, he wouldn't take from anyone else. That's how he puts it. So, yeah, fascinating, right? So. Um, that's what particularly clues us in to think that this was a definitely an, an abiding and real kind of love of his uh, in his life. Yeah. Right. Let's just take a little breather there and have some ads and we'll be back in a moment. Hey, how you doing? My name is Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. And I just want to tell you about a new podcast called Death of a Film Star. It's from the makers of Death of a Rock Star. And it's really good. We've got episodes about Heath Ledger, Chadwick Boseman, Marilyn Monroe, and Robin Williams. You've seen them tell incredible stories. So now it's time for us to tell theirs. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. Honestly, do it now. It'll be worth it. In his personal vibe, um, I understand he had a reputation for a certain amount of emotional 
chilliness, a certain amount of detachment? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, let me give you a, my favorite description of Santiana, which is from Horace Callan, a, a devotee of Santiana. I think it's just the best description of what he was like when he taught in the classroom, and then it gives you a sense of that detachment you're talking about, right? He says, the first time I saw Santiana, I saw a very dapper figure carrying a bowler hat, gloves and cane. He walks in almost he walks in almost unnoticed, seats himself at the desk while the usual classroom rustle and noises continue, hardly subsiding, then he begins to talk. There is something in the voice and something in the way he doesn't look you in the in the eye. He never did. I found out later he was terribly nearsighted. There was a turn of the eye that made you think of religious pictures, usually with lectures, even the best. There comes a time when you're bored, not with Santiana. You listen and look, even if you don't agree. Santiana simply had an allure. It wasn't merely the voice. It was the way he addressed you. He talked pretty much as he wrote and wrote pretty much as he talked, end quote. So there you go, right? You get a good sense of his manner there, a really vivid sense of his manner. And it was absolutely true of his person and his writing. He had a bunch of superstar students at Harvard, T.S. Eliot, Robert Frost, Gertrude Stein, W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, that's quite a, a stellar group. Absolutely. I, wish, I only wish we had more uh, than we do have on exactly the relations and influence that he may have had over these figures you just mentioned. Um, there's, there's a real um, fascinating question about, you know, what, if anything, Santiana may have done to you know, inspire them to, you know, to, to go on into their careers, you know. It sounds as well, Matt, like he didn't necessarily enjoy the academic life, that he felt that some of the philosophers were just sitting around, you know, I referenced playfully ivory towers at the start of this chat, but that that's how he saw some philosophers. Yeah, just kind of like an intellectual circle jerk. Yeah, Santiago thought philosophy should be life. It should be your way of life. If you really are a philosopher, you live your philosophy. And that's, again, why I think he left Harvard in 1912. He, you know, he, he could have and maybe ought to have, if he, certainly if he would have preferred to have had an academic career and maybe even made his name a little more strongly in among, you know, his fellow f uh, philosophers of that time, he probably ought to have stayed at Harvard, but he voluntarily left. And he was offered uh, many times even after that other kinds of positions, but he refused them. And choosing instead to live in hotels and live freely and write as he, as he wished to write and produce the works that he ended up producing, many of the most uh, known after that time. So, yeah, he, and he disliked it intensely. I think a big part of it was, he mentions this quite a bit in his letters, his dislike of Protestant America. There was this kind of stifled, puritanical, you know, uh, and you, you guys mentioned this, he's a Spaniard, um, probably a closeted homosexual. All of these things came into play to make his time at Harvard simultaneously formative and rewarding, but also kind, kind of um, agonizing for him. And he says this quite a bit. There's a couple letters where he really boils over about it, and that's what, that's what clues us into his dislike of that. Yeah. He also boils over uh, in his uh, 1911 address at Berkeley, which is the genteel tradition in American philosophy. So he's, uh, he's blasting America for uh, what? He th thinks that they're just reliant on a static past and uh, they're stodgy. I mean, what, what's his beef? Yeah, and I mean, I I put it in a little little more subtly, but you're right. There's a there's a deep criticism in this genteel tradition in American philosophy. This is a 1911 address just before he leaves Harvard, 
So it's, it's, it's a good time for him to kind of make a kind of um, synoptic comment to, to Americans as he's kind of, it, it's funny, no one knew it at the time, but it was, you almost get the sense that he's literally saying, see ya, you know, as he's ready to get on the boat and say, here's yeah. my last words. But they're not altogether, um, you know, critical, cruel, or, or, um, or, or, or wince-worthy. They're actually praising as well. Santiana is hopeful as well. There's a, there's a note of hope, I should say, towards the end of it, where he, he suggests that, as you say, Americans are reliant, too reliant, culturally, intellectually, on what he calls the genteel tradition, which, you know, how do you define that? It's what passes for high culture in America, you know? Um, America is not known for high culture, right? Uh, notoriously, Americans are seen as kind of um, uh, devoid of culture by some, but if they have culture at all, it's, it's certainly low culture, right? That seems to be kind of like a, a, a typical perspective on Americans. And Santiana is addressing this in a very deep way because he goes back to the Calvinism, the Puritanism of Americans, and he sees that as the problem. So if you think of like Gone with the Wind, which was a book that came out the same year as Santiana's novel, The Last Puritan, that book represents a certain kind of southern gentility, right? There's this, there's this idea of the southern lady and all this. I, I, I would offer that that's kind of a nice way to visualize what Santiana was getting at is the kind of thing that's holding Americans back. They, they don't know what to do with culture. They, knew, they know perfectly well what to do materially, right? They're, they're all about progress and industry and moving forward and being the leaders of the world and in all those areas. But what meantime is to be done with the mind, with their, their intellect and with culture? This was Santiana's point. And yeah, he was hugely critical, but also it's, a, it's such an important work for so many reasons because it's just a, a, a brilliant work of cultural criticism. And it's one of those essays that, you know, you go back and back to, and I teach it a lot in my classes to this day, and I try to get students to appreciate how prescient it was, how much it speaks to even where we are today with our divided cultural politics and so on. Right, so he doesn't have a huge number of friends amongst his fellow philosophers. So, Matt, who are his sounding boards? Because, Katie, if I were to set myself up as a philosopher, which I'm not going to, and I was going to come up with some grandiose mansplaining about the universe and everything, I would want to finesse my ideas. I wouldn't want to just sit there and scribble them down. I want to be going, Katie, I've got a little idea here. And I'd want th- someone else's thoughts and ideas on it. You'd want a little bit of back and forth to and fro, a ping and a pong. So Matt, who does that for, for George? Well, there's a few people. Towards the end of his life, in, there was one particular fellow, and that was Daniel Corey. Um, he w- ended up being his literary executor and one of the better expounders of his thought, Santiana thought himself. When people would write and try to describe Santiana's thought, he tended to be mostly disappointed and critical of it. But um, Daniel Corey, not so much. He thought Daniel Corey more or less got what he was up to. But when you read their uh, exchanges and what they, what they exchange over, you get the sense that he's really using Corey as a way to work out his own ideas. But that's the way Santana worked, too. The truth is he, he wasn't a ping-ponger. He, was, he, was, he, he ping-ponged in his own mind, and he used others really to confirm. He was, <laughs> he was probably a, a, the classic, he was certainly the classic mansplainer um, one would hope um, with a certain air of politeness that maybe typical mansplainers lacked, right? <laughs> he, he would never last on Twitter then. <laughs> no, he would have nothing to do with Twitter and probably with technology. In fact, he was, he was horrified by the telephone when it came along in his lifetime. He, he, would, he just couldn't imagine what, in fact, he never used it. He was like, why? What he said of the telephone, as a matter of fact, is exactly what I said of cell phones myself when they first came into inception. I, I, what can I say? I'm a disciple, right? So, but uh, he said that telephones, if I want to be bothered, 
bothered every minute of every day by anybody at any time randomly. Well, I'd love to have a telephone, but why would I want that? He's, he's got a point there, Katie. Yeah, he, he does have a point. <laughs> So I'm interested in a a less savory aspect of Santayana. He was known to be anti-Semitic, harboring certain white supremacist and eugenic beliefs. He had ideas that superior races uh, should be discouraged from, quote, intermarriage with inferior stock, unquote. Um, I think this is sort of odd considering that didn't he experience being an outsider himself as a Spanish man at an American Ivy League university. So didn't that give him some sort of perspective and indeed being gay? Wow, so timely and interesting that you brought this up. We're, we're in the middle of a, a reading group, a Zoom reading group among us, Santiana scholars of the Life of Reason. We're rereading it and discussing it. And it's in the Life of Reason, which is an earlier work of his he wrote while he was still at Harvard, where there are some unsavory passages in there that um, reflect something of what you were just saying. One particular passage where, yeah, he he uh, more or less suggests that it's not good for races to mix and things like this. To say he's an advocate of eugenics, I think, goes too far. Santiana had moments where he says things like this, but um, one one telltale sign that this was stuff that it's hard to pin him down on is that later, uh, the later edition of The Life of Reason, when he was editing it and he was taking out certain content, he, uh, th- that content was removed. And um, it was maybe two or three paragraphs that was the most problematic part of it. So I wouldn't say he was an advocate of eugenics, but he had problematic moments in his writing for sure where he's advocating anti-Semitic and perhaps even eugenicist type ideas. I mean, again, that's, that's a little strong. But, um, you know, it's different ways of trying to maybe defend him. I wouldn't. I'm not one to defend every idea of any philosopher that I, that I love or that I devote myself to, and Santiana is certainly one of those. And this was the kind of takeaway we had in this discussion. It, we said, we're not going to apologize for Santiana on this. This was a, sh- a sure defect of his. But it wasn't anything he preoccupied himself with, I have to say. He wasn't Heidegger. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't some of these other thinkers that we can kind of um, far more tag with these kinds of things. Matt, how do we think Billy Joel heard about him? Because my fear would be that if a philosopher shuffled off this mortal coil at this point, that the man in the streets would not necessarily know about it. So why is Billy growing up there on Long Island? Why is he aware of him, do we think? I was so glad you asked this question, because that was, that was what preoccupied me when, I, when you guys invited me for this. I was, what the heck was Billy Joel? You know, and so I looked into his educational history, and, and you know, he just, there's no sign in any of his interviews or anything I read of his biography that, that he directly came across Santiana. And so I kind of scratched that off the list. And then there's one particular interview where he's explaining how he wrote the song, and it sounds to me like it, I'm guessing that he needed at that point, what is it, the third verse in the song? I can't remember the exact place in the song, but he, he needed at that exact moment in the song to kind of encapsulate, you know, what, what, would, what would be like the, that's why he says, Santayana, goodbye, right? He's talking about that quote in association with this period he's trying to capture in this pop song, you know. Um, so I, I doubt he read Santayana very greatly. I doubt he even maybe knew Santayana before uh, he wrote the song. He per- probably did whatever equivalent of Google existed at that time and and found out and for one thing he says Santiana which most people say when they haven't read him and that's that's also appropriate to say it's not the wrong pronunciation but um, but if most who've read Santiana would say Santiana you know so who knows who knows ah. you know who knows 
So he he gave himself away with the the stress on the wrong syllable. Yeah, maybe not though. I mean, to be fair, he, it's a pop song and he's Billy Joel, and he could say that any way he wants, you know. <laughs> okay, so he gets it to run the goodbye, the Santiana goodbye. He gets it to run with Catcher in the Rye. But you could have had other goodbyes there, couldn't you? Like we had a little cheeky look before we started recording yeah. this episode. Other big names to have passed away in 1952. Could have had Evita. Yeah, Evita Perón was in there. Yogananda, kind of similar to Santayana, Yogananda. But I'm curious, so you, do you guys think he did it because of the quote primarily or because of, he wanted Santayana to be, you know, the name of, the person of Santayana to be included among the other persons or what, what's your thought on that? This, this is what we don't know. Like we think it scans well. <laughs> Syllables wise, it does a job, doesn't it, in a song of that sort of cadence? I mean, I could I could share my theory of why I think it's the quote. You know, when Billy Joel was asked about the song, he said it was inspired when he was talking to another younger uh, musician who, yeah, and he was saying something about, um, he thought, it, it struck me that he thought it was naive what the guy was saying, something about history, how, oh, things are so bad right now and, and they were great in your day, right? And he was like, the 1950s? Are you kidding me? You don't know anything, kid. And that's why he wrote the song, you know, to kind of say, look, there was a lot of stuff. So I get the feeling that quote came to his mind in a sense like, well, if you're going to be that kind of ahistorical and maybe ignorant of how each historical period really is kind of like a, a lot of the same things are happening over and over again, but also they depend upon what's happened before, right? That's what's kind of genius about what he's trying to say, I think, is that you know, you got you to gotta, you gotta know history, you know, and if you don't, you're going to repeat it. So I don't know if that's what he had in mind, but you're right. It's, it's, um, it fits the, the pentameter of the, <laughs> the, of the lyrics for sure. So, of course, Katie, we are going to track Billy Joel down. That is our fond hope. Oh, yes. He's going to reach out. We're going to reach out. Some sort of intermediary will reach in both directions. Hands across the water. And when we get Billy on and we welcome him to the show that he's inspired, the very first thing that we shall say, we should look at each other and then look at Billy and say, Santayana. And then I'm going to say, Studebaker! Anyway, getting back to Santayana, why, Matt, isn't Santayana better known today? Uh, is there a deliberate neglect or is there a sense that he doesn't quite fit in with the times? Probably more the latter, you know, in the same way that many of the philosophers from this period don't. Um, but it's funny, philosophers' popularity, including Plato, you know, Plato, why thousands of years later are we still reading Plato? Well, throughout his own, throughout Plato's history, there, there were times when his popularity waned or he was received in different kinds of ways. I think it just happens with, with great philosophers of every sort. But with Santayana, you're right, there's a, there, there is a challenge of him fitting in with the times, um, He's somewhat anti-modern. He's, he's certainly um, skeptical of technological progress and so on. And, you know, in that sense, he's certainly not going to become a fashionable figure in our times. But there will always be um, a time to come, I think, where Santiana's thoughts will once again kind of um, appeal to people as, um, well, as history either repeats itself or starts to learn some of its lessons. And we'll see what happens, right? Well, certainly uh, his feelings about technology and the telephone, I think more and more people understand that, the uh, the privilege of privacy. Perhaps. Sounds like the title of your first book, that, Katie, your first volume of philosophy. The privilege of privacy. I like it. I like it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm being forced into a life uh, on my own in a bubble in the ivory tower. We need woman-splaining. That's what we I need. Woman, I need I, woman. This is, this is what I'm going to bring to philosophy, just... Katie splaining. I don't even know if I can speak for all women, 
but I am certainly happy to tell both of you what to do and where to go. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where to go right now, Dr. Matt Flam, but thank you for being here with us today. Katie, I now find myself wondering which lyric in We Didn't Start the Fire would mess with the head of George Santayana the most. I would like to sit down with him and just say to him, George, Space Monkey, first six, shoot. You know what I would say to screw up his brain powers? I would say punk rock. Yeah. And he would be very confused about that. He'd start to think about geology. It's probably just as well that it, he said goodbye when he did. What is our philosophy, Katie? What we might refer to as fire splaining? <laughs> fire splaining would be, uh, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> yeah. That, that is our philosophy of life. Like It's, it's very positive. It's forward looking. Uh, there's a momentum built in, driven by our appetite. And then just a quest, always a quest to be fulfilled. So I think it's, uh, it's one that gets us from A to B and back again. Okay, next week, now that is a meal, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, uh, probably just number one bad guy of all time. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a good one. And if you would like a podcast to listen to, in the meantime, I'd recommend searching for Alan Cummings' Shelves. Join the wonderful actor Alan Cumming as he takes you through the stories of his life through random objects he finds on his shelves. Oh, and he's joined by some brilliant friends. There's Sir Ian McKellen to join him to talk about a dog collar, mysterious. Cindy Lauper helps him piece together the story of a pair of leather gloves. And you can find out about Alan Spice Girl's lunchbox with Jerry Halliwell. The stories are hilarious. So search for Alan Cummings' Shelves on your podcast app. And while you're doing these sort of things, subscribe <laughs> to We Didn't Start the Fire. It really helps us. You can follow us on social media at Spread That Fire. Or if you like, you can go old school. You can email us, fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Maybe you fancy yourself as a guest on a future episode. Maybe someone you know would be the most amazing guest for a future episode. Look at the lyrics, have a little play around, see what happens. I'm really looking forward to meeting all of you listeners, all of you. So I'm sure you're expert on anything. Let's let's go off piste. Forget the lyrics. Just do a PS. A whole, you know, whatever you're an expert in. I'm making this up. I'm riffing, man. I'm spitballing. I'm practicing for my career as a philosopher. Network, a place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.